New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. are a society of armchair psychologists who are constantly self-diagnosing. We label ourselves as depressed, overly sensitive, insecure, and suffering from low self-esteem. We also label other people's emotions and behaviors, assuming they have anger issues and lack of self-control. We call them narcissistic, irresponsible, or lazy. We even put labels on whole groups of people who disturb us. We say they are immoral, oversex, greedy, untrustworthy, irresponsible, and even criminal. There are scores of books and television programs that suggest ways for us to reprogram and rid ourselves of disturbing feelings and behavior patterns. Our guest today, David Bedrick, gives us a new vision of psychology, one where people are seen not as either functional or dysfunctional, but in terms of their diversity. It's a psychology where awareness and dialogue are more important than labels. Bedrick is deepening the dialogue about the role and practice of psychology in today's society. David Bedrick is a teacher, counselor, attorney, organizational consultant, and writer. He's a practitioner of process-oriented psychology, a branch of Jungian psychology. He did his clinical training at the Process Work Institute, which is founded by Arnie Mendel. Bedrick is a diplomate of the Institute. Currently, he maintains a practice as a counselor and coach for individuals and groups. He speaks and writes on topics ranging from ethics, diversity, relationships, to dreams, diet, body image, anger, and shame. He's the author of Talking Back to Dr. Phil, Alternatives to Mainstream Psychology. Join us for the next hour as we explore demystifying conventional applications of mainstream psychology with our guest, David Bedrick. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. David, welcome. Thank you, Justine. That was a, a gracious introduction. Oh, well, it's my pleasure. It was a, it was a wonderful book. I just, I just poured over it. I loved it. I loved being with you the other night in a, a live presentation. And I'm excited about sharing your experiences with our listeners. Hmm. I'd like to start... Uh, First of all, uh, we, we need to know, uh, why did you pick Dr. Phil, who is most of us know is a, a 
TV star with a TV uh, television program, I think it's daily, uh, that works with different people on psychological issues. So why did you pick Dr. Phil? Mm. I'm glad you didn't say pick on, because that would not be my (laughs) intention, actually. And I don't know much about him as a person or what he would be like as a counselor sitting in front of another person. But he has millions of people who watch his show, and then he's a straw man for a certain kind of thinking. And that thinking is something like this. If you're doing something that disturbs you, or you're having feelings that are difficult, anger, depressions, low feelings, high feelings, he would say, is that working for you? What are you thinking? As if we could motivate you to change yourself without going deeper. So for me, he has a way of telling people this is the way to be that models the way we are inside. We do things that we don't like, and I think, oh, I'm a procrastinator. Oh, I'm depressed. Oh, I have anger problems. And this kind of quick fixing diagnosing tends to shame people and not sustainably help them. David, one of the things that that you point out is that much of mainstream psychology tries to, I'm going to put in quote, normalize people and what do you mean by normalizing people? Mm-hmm. Normalize means that there's a comfortable range for me and there's a comfortable range for the community around me to have me be in. So if I'm upset, I can say, Justine, I'm a little bit angry right now, but I can't yell or I can't, if I go to a meditation center, I can have a tear come out of my eye, but I can't leave and scream. I can, of course. So there's a comfortable range. If I'm depressed, I can say I'm kind of down today, but I can't really go deeply down, lay down and kind of go, ugh. So what mainstream psychology tends to do then is to bring people towards a center, a comfortable, normalized center, rather than explore those outer ranges. So in that way, it's a diversity issue for an individual because people are unique as flowers, as nature are, all kinds of expressions. And it's a diversity issue socially because different groups are different. Some groups you would want to help in a conflict resolution, for example, by having one person talk at a time. In some groups, that would be really inappropriate. As a facilitator, you should learn how to have people talk together because that's what those groups do. But if we try to normalize them, then we push aside some of the richness of people and that doesn't always help them maintain a change. It, that that just reminds me of an experience I had, and this goes back to the work of Arnie Mandel that you've you've had you've studied with him, and 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 I ha- I've mm-hmm. experienced him, and we were in a small group, and in in and I'm this is referring to how we talk to one another, and we just kind of as Westerners jump in on one another, and mm-hmm. and not take turns, so to speak, but we get excited and we just jump in. And there was one woman who was from Moscow who was in our group. And she she we met throughout the weeks. It was a three weeks that we were meeting in both a large group and a small group. And she was in my small group. And she got more and more offended by us. And I couldn't understand what she was talking about. And, and her English was not terribly clear, so it was hard for her to express herself. But at the very end of those three weeks, she expressed in the whole big group why it was so difficult for her to be with a bunch of Westerners. And she said that she grew up under communism. And in communism, she learned, and this is the deepest kind of repression, I think, 
she learned not to even think certain thoughts because it was dangerous if she blurted them out. So she started to repress even her thinking process and to be around Westerners that are just kind of blurting out every thought we ever had really fast um, was just appalling and offensive to her, and, and it just it hurt her soul. Uh, do you have any comments on that one? I'm thinking of similar experiences. I remember being at a group conflict workshop. Uh, maybe it was the same one. And there was a conflict between some Russian folks and some Polish folks about history and what had happened between the countries. And the way they would work it out is one person would get up and make a speech <laughs> that could last five minutes. And then that person would sit down. Everyone would listen. Right? That that person is the momentary authority. Then another person would get up and make a speech. And we were thinking, how is this going to resolve? There's a bunch of speeches. And the next day they came back and they said, we worked it all out. And someone said, how did you do it? And this Russian man had a big smile on his face and he said, vodka. <laughs> <laughs> they sat at the bar afterwards and melted away with the vodka, a little bit of that hardened structure. And people started talking to each other and dialoguing in a way and they right. got connected with each right. other. Right, exactly. And I'm also reminded of when you're talking about normalizing, we were talking earlier about normalizing people. There was one incident in that you mentioned in your book that really grabbed me. I had an emotional reaction to it. And it was when um, there was a woman on Dr. Phil, a mother, and five sons. And four of the sons were very, very dutiful. They all had good jobs, quote unquote, and they all came and and were really attentive to the family structure. And then there was this one black sheep. His name was Michael, and he or that's the name you used in the book. And he he just didn't follow the program. And he got really segmented out on this episode of Dr. Phil. And I had an emotional reaction to that. Do you recall that? particular one? I do. It's really interesting that psychology hasn't taken much from what we know about diversity socially. So we know pretty much most sociologists and psychologists who study social issues know that if a group is marginalized, let's say that's an African-American group, that they're going to experience certain difficulties, not just because of what happens internal to that community, but because that community is marginalized and then will suffer certain ways. And then there'll be certain schools and the schools are more likely to have bars on the windows and teachers who don't want to stay and a whole host of things and people will be looked at as problems. And then part of their difficulties will be because of those lack of resources, because of the way they're seen. It's an expectation. We start looking at people, well, that person's not going to do well. They tend not to do well. So we haven't really taken that same notion and said that happens in families much. Little bits has happened. So that if you're in a family and you have a different orientation, then you might have certain problems. And then I might say, oh, well, you have psychological problems. Let's send you to a therapist, right? Family systems would call that you're the identified patient. You're the ill one. You have a pathology. Let's fix you. But if we look at diversity notions, we might say, hmm, just because of how outside the family norm you are may create problems for you. You may not feel included. You may not feel appreciated by the rest of the family because our norms say these are good things, not what you're doing. So a lot of the suffering you may experience has to do with how the family is seeing you, appreciating you, 
the kinds of norms that you don't fit into make life difficult for you, um, as opposed to you having a difficulty. Even even uh, mm-hmm. on the episode, you mentioned that mm-hmm. the mother said, oh, well, he always felt alien to me. I mean, even as a little kid. So mm-hmm. uh, that must have been a clue. When, if, that were, if that were you as a counselor or a therapist working with that system, how would you have done it differently rather than just trying to change his pattern, but something else might occur? I remember the, that family had a more mainstream orientation towards success. Work hard and make some money and you'll get somewhere. I think, great. I like that idea. But this individual had more of an artistic life goal and sensibility. That means his hours are probably not going to be like other people's. His scheduling is not going to be like other people's. So how do you deal with that? Well, one way is to find those same aspects in other people in the family. And in that family, some of them wanted to be artists, but they said, well, I don't have time for that. I'll do my art on the weekend. So if you had said to some of those other family members, what would it have taken for you to live your artistic life? Well, that would have been scary. That would have been a great risk. At that moment, there's an inherent appreciation of that artist person. He's no longer someone who didn't make it and didn't follow the mainstream orientation. He's someone who was a risk taker, who had courage that other family members didn't. So as the rest of the family begins to see themselves as like that, that'll get easier. This is really big in organizations where it's easy to scapegoat a particular person. That's the thief etc., where we don't look at everybody as having some of those similar problems. So we get rid of one person, but another person pops up and has the same problems. I'm here with David Bedrick. He's the author of Talking Back to Dr. Phil, Alternatives to Mainstream Psychology. And if you'd like to know more about his work, you can go to his website, um, talkingbacktodrphil.com, and it's Dr. D-R Phil, P-H-I-L, dot com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with David Bedrick, and by the way, he spells his name David Bedrick, B-E-D-R-I-C-K, David Bedrick, and he's the author of Talking Back to Dr. Phil, Alternatives to Mainstream Psychology. David, I I know that you practice something called love-based psychology or process-oriented psychology. What is that about? Can you just give us a brief Mm -hmm. overview? Yeah, the the important distinction 
uh, for folks is that rather than look at people as having a problem that I'm going to somehow relieve or get rid of, I'm going to get rid of their anger, I'm going to get rid of their depression, I'm going to change their addictive patterns, all those I would love to do. But then I begin not by trying to get rid of those, but by understanding those. That's why I call it loving. It's not a smushy, soft thing. It's about deeply listening to what people are doing, assuming that there is a native intelligence inside people. So when they pick up a cigarette or a needle or do something that looks uneasy, that there's something going on for them that's meaningful, as if it's a seed that's growing, that's having a hard time taking root or coming up above the earth, then it doesn't look so good because of those blocks, because of those things that get in the way. But if it's allowed to flower, then it might look much more gracious and beautiful to people. Now, you're not saying that that you were encouraging people to keep using addictive substances, keep smoking or, or taking drugs or whatever. You're, you're not saying that. What What exactly are you saying? Right. I'm thinking about a person that I worked with who uses cocaine, among other drugs, and he uses them intravenously, and he has a rather dangerous lifestyle around that. And yet, if you met him, Justine, he would sound very calm. He'd say, hi, how you doing? I'm exaggerating a little bit, but he's very low. And his family says, yeah, we need to mellow him out so that he could get off of his drugs. And then if you ask him what it's like to use cocaine, he would say, ah, it's a rush. And you would see his face light up and you would see a fist in his hand. And he looks like an intense young man. He's in his mid-20s. So then what I'm learning is not that he needs to use cocaine, but that cocaine is giving him access to a certain intensity, a rush, a part of his personality. I'm going to have to help him connect with that part of his personality. If I mellow him out as a way to get him off that drug, I should expect that he's going to look for something to help him feel that rush again. So in that way, trying to get him over it, it's not intentionally doing this, may exactly be a recipe for having him still look for the rush. So I want him to live more of a rush life. He founds that in music, for instance. He plays music late at night and he feels intense. So I'm trying to help him stay with his musical life as opposed to working for the store that his family works with. Otherwise, he might be mellow. And guess what happens after work? He looks for his rush. Right. And I'm thinking just culturally, we, we use the word, you know, okay, cool out. You know, we, we encourage, and, and mm-hmm. little kids will say, okay, you need to take a time out. You know, those kids that get hyperactive, and we, and we, we just start very early cooling, cooling people out. Yeah, I'm noticing the way you're making your hands, too, like you're, like you're pushing them down, like, like the hands are going up and down, like you're going to try to get someone to sit down. It makes me think when I, w- when I would teach psychology and people would ask me about ADHD. Now, many people are given medication for that and are helped. So I'm not anti-medication. Some medications are just right for people, although it does worry me socially, culturally, when 10, 15% of the people could be diagnosed. I start thinking, is that everybody who has a pathology or is this a cultural dilemma? But I used to say to people, watch, I'm going to give you ADHD, quote unquote, I would say. And then I'd say to a person, sit in your chair, don't move. Up, I saw you blink. Up, I see you. And pretty soon people are going to want to wiggle. And what you feel is that one force would try to hold a person down 
And then something in that person would probably not want to be held down. So it looks like a shaking, right? One force holding them down, the other force trying to move against that. So you get these two forces meeting and you get a shaking of the person, almost like the person has too much energy to hold. They need a way to express that energy. The tighter I make that lid, the more likely they're going to want to burst out. If I can make the lid super tight, I might be able to control them for a little while, but then they might burst in the world of anger, we call that having a bad temper. A bad temper means that you have a very tight lid. Somebody else might say, we have to get rid of their anger. I would say, if you put too much of a lid on the person's anger, they're going to look calm, and then surprisingly, what happens? They blow, because I can't say to somebody, um, I need a break, or that doesn't work for me. I hold it in, right. Poof, right. blow. Right, and. In fact, you have a whole whole part of your book about anger and taming, uh, meeting the beast of anger. So, um, you know, how would you respond to someone who does have, is labeled as having an anger problem? Mm-hmm. I would, if, they, if somebody said to me, I have an anger problem, I would ask them how they know that because there's a good chance that other people are telling them that, that they, or that they're concerned about how they're hurting people. So that's important. If that person's hurting someone, then we need to figure out a way to help them without hurting someone. But in my office, I'm going to make myself safe. And then I would like to say, can I see what it's like for you to be angry? Show me some. Now that person might be very shy to show it because it bursts out properly. It's not a conscious intention to use their power. It's something that bursts out. And they might say, well, and let's say I saw some teeth gritting. I might see some signs of what people might think of as anger. And I might say, I see a little bit of that jaw tightening. Can you make your jaw tight? They might do that. Can you make a sound that goes with that? I'm moving along quicker here than I would in a session. And they might go, I'd say, yes, let's make that sound. I want them to be in touch consciously of their anger and see what can unfold there. And then they might go further. I can't stand it anymore. And I'd say, what can't you stand? I've been trying to be my father's son my whole life. I've been dealing with crap from my boss. I always wanted to be a bookstore owner. I never really wanted to be a banker. That's really important. I'm getting two things. I'm getting content. This is what I would like to do in my life. And I'm getting power. Now, if they don't have access to that power, they won't be able to make the changes they need. So if I de-anger them, take their anger away, if I could give them medicine, psychological medicine to take their anger away, they might not have enough force to break through a life that's not so good for them. In that case, they're living a life that they don't feel good in, tap down, builds up, boom, blows up. Goes now that anger is released. This is typical in domestic violence. The anger is released. I feel fine. Everything looks good. The police were used to, used to not know very much better about that. They'd come to someone's house after a man maybe had hurt a woman, and they'd say that person looked calm. That's because the explosion happened, but the buildup is the problem, right. not just the explosion. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So finding, I'm trying to follow that. So it's the energy that we're going for and, and to rechannel it in more more constructive or creative ways? Is that what you're saying? That's exactly right. And the channeling will have to happen by the person showing you where to channel it. So you so can't you don't say, make it up for them. You don't say, mm-hmm. okay, well, you, you need to go uh, out and do gardening or whatever. That's right. Go exercise. Yeah. Maybe. But if that anger says, I want to 
open a bookstore and I don't want to be a banker anymore. But I have to help them channel it into making changes in their life relative to leaving organizations, telling people they can't support that person in the same way. Otherwise, I make up a program that's typical in pop psychology. Here's a way to relieve your anger, meditate, exercise. But the anger is meant to do something. I have to help it do that work. So it's an indication. It's It gives you an indication, and you follow then that particular person. You don't have... You don't have the seven steps to uh, enlightenment or whatever. It's not mm-hmm. about that. It's like every person is different. Is that what you're saying? Yes. And you follow them. Like you even talked about this person. You asked him to express the anger, and you watched his body. And as soon as you got some sort of a little indication, you noticed his jaw tighten up. Then you go with that. But you let him kind of guide you. Is that what I'm hearing? Perfect. I am, a, I, I am an awareness follower. That means I'm using all my awareness that I can in watching all the communication a person gives me, much of which is not verbal, and saying, they're going to show me the way. And how are they going to begin showing me? They're going to tell me about the things that they're least comfortable, that they least like, that they're most against in themselves. Those are things a person can't follow well because they're against them. I hate that I am quiet and introverted. Great, that's my beginning to follow. Let's get quiet and introverted together. Because they're so against it means that their awareness is not going to be open to learning about it. They want to change it. Let's get introverted. Wow. Then the person might get quiet and sit. They might say, well, if I were really introverted, I would leave. I wouldn't sit here with you as a counselor. Where would you go? Oh, I'd go to the ocean. What do you do there? I dance at the ocean. I never would have guessed that. I would have thought maybe they were going to sing silent. Could you imagine dancing in the ocean? Yes, I'm celebrating life. Aha, when they're extroverted, they're paying attention to people and being responsible, I learn. When they're at the ocean, they're celebrating life. I didn't know that person didn't celebrate life enough, but their introversion showed me that was their path. That's beautiful, that's beautiful. Let's talk about um, compromise, because often... I, I know you mentioned that in Dr. Phil's case that he he says marriage, I, I think you quoted him, marriage is a negotiation. And oftentimes he shows people how they have to compromise with each other. What do you feel about compromise? Mm-hmm. Compromise is such a huge topic because on a world level, a relationship level, people are always trying to do that. And compromise means you give a little bit, and I give a little bit. And then win-win means that you were able to give some, I was able to give some, and we came up with a resolution. So the first problem with compromise is that if you give something that's important for you, that you can't only give freely, that means later on, right, I'm going to find out about it because you're not going to carry through. And if I give something that's super meaningful to me, and I make a sacrifice that I can't only make. Happens in relationships all the time, especially at the beginning of relationships. That's okay. I can be this way. I don't need to be having so many friends. I don't need to be spending weekends away writing my book, right? But something in you can't only give that away. Can't only compromise. So then if you can follow this, what looks like a win-win, if we make that agreement, is also a lose-lose. That means you gave away something that you can't give away. I gave away something I can't give away that's going to come back to haunt us later. If it lasts a long time, it's going to come back to haunt us with resentment on top. 
So a lot of times what causes conflict in relationship is that I give in too easily at the beginning and say, I'll give away everything because I love you. Why wouldn't I? And you say, I'd give away everything because I love you. This is a beautiful moment. <laughs> I think, amen, that's an ecstatic moment. It's, we may not ever get together if we didn't have that. But if I hold to that compromise too much, later on we're going to have problems. So compromise is not only a resolution, compromise might cause a problem. But, but then if we um, don't compromise, how do we get to where I get everything I want and you get everything you want and we still live together? Yeah. <laughs> We're going to have to, I'm going to get to that question in just one mm. moment. I, what, what do you think about that? I'm here with David Bedrick. He's the author of Talking Back to Dr. Phil, Alternatives to Mainstream Psychology. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, Talking back to drphil.com. And Dr. Phil is drphilphil.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with David Bedrick, and he's the author of Talking Back to Dr. Phil, Alternatives to Mainstream Psychology. We're talking about compromise, especially in a relationship. And if it's if we don't compromise, then how are we going to live together? If we, I get everything I want and you get everything you want, how, how does that work? Right. We have to find out what's behind the lack of compromise. So let's say that it's you and somebody are in front of me at a counseling session and there's a conflict. And then partner says to you, this is not okay with me. I want you to be more available to me. I have a hard, stressful day and I want you to care for me more, listen to me more, maybe do some things that are out of your own schedule. And let's say you say, well, I'm trying to do that. It would be good to do that. I agree now, if you hear my voice, you would hear someone who's not quite saying yes. That person is hesitating. They're not saying, I'd love to do that. Sounds great. I would, I've been waiting for you to ask, right? <laughs> That's an easy conflict. Then they're probably not at my therapy office, right? <laughs> but, if, but if that person's saying, well, I would say, you don't only want to agree. Well, I know, but I should, I should. I understand yeah. that. Let me just talk to you about what would be not good about you compromising at this moment. We don't have to do that, but just go for it. Say all the reasons not. That person might say, you know what? I'm always compromising my life. I've given away a lot of different things. I haven't pursued aspects of my life because I'm there for my partner. Maybe you are trained as a woman person to be a more open, compromising, fluid person and not really stand your own ground. So you have a lot of forces that are saying, put yourself away for someone else. And I'm thinking, oh, tell me more about those things you've left behind. Now you start telling me about those things. These are all reasons for you not to compromise. I only learn about those if I believe that your unwillingness to compromise is meaningful, that it's a seed there. Now, as I learn about those things, I say to the other person, she might be able to make some compromises, but you better darn well support her to live some of this life that she's left behind. Otherwise, 
it's not going to work so well. There's a lot more behind her lack of compromise than her rigidity. Many people would die. So it, it's you're seeing it that the, the not wanting to compromise. You first of all, you heard the tone of voice mm-hmm. that that we're not full on to say, oh yeah, I'll do that. And following that, you're you're looking at it not as a specific resistance, but there is something meaningful in it in in their hesitation. There's some there's some meaning there. There's some perfect intelligence there. Mm-hmm. That's beautifully said. There's psychology for a long time has used this word resistance as a way of talking about a client that wasn't following the therapist's advice or structure. I think this is really foolish. Many people shouldn't follow anybody's advice. Many people come to a counselor, I've seen this many times, learning how to stand up to an authority and not go along with some authority. So if I think I'm giving them advice and they're not listening to me, and I'm taking this personally or as some manifestation of that person's problem, I may not be getting the fact that this person saying no to me, not following my suggestions, might be a great breakthrough for them. Right. I'm thinking of a woman who came to me and she asked this great question. She said, how come I can't make healthy choices? I think, what a great question. (laughs) And I said to you, I said to her, can you tell me a dream? that you had, a nighttime dream. And she said, I dreamt that there was a woman who was very attracted to me and she wanted to bring me flowers. I think maybe she was falling in love with me. That dream says that she's falling in love with herself a little bit. That dream is like parts of herself. I said, what would you love about yourself? What would you be attracted to in yourself? Because I want her to feel that dream part. And she said, if I were to be attracted to myself, I would love the fact that I'm such a free spirit. Now, this is a wonderful thing. One part of her says, I should make healthy choices. I've gone to dietitians. They told me I should eat this to make my digestive system better. And the other part of her says, I love the fact that I'm a free spirit. Free spirits don't listen to anybody but themselves. Now, if I become one more person saying, I'm going to help you become more disciplined and damn well follow your healthy choices, I'm inadvertently against her free spiritedness. I'm going to lose that argument. She's going to at best leave me, at worst feel ashamed and like a failure because I keep on telling her to do something. I've got to become friends with her free-spirited nature. At that point, we could think about her choices, but not before then. Otherwise, I'm against her nature. I haven't seen the free-spiritedness wants the flower. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that, that takes me to something. I'm going to go out on a limb here. It takes me to something about healthy choices. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm going to... Have try and experiment and let have you mm-hmm. invite you to work with me on healthy choices because I have an issue in my life that I'm facing. And do, do you mind? Do you, do you? Please, I'm excited. My face is, is a glow. You can't see it on the other end of the radio. Okay. Um, for a very long time, I've been unable to stay on a program of exercise. Mm. And this is important to me because I can feel – as I get older, that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not as limber. My, my joints are stiff. I get up and I just, I, I know this is not healthy for me, that it would be better for my body. My body would be happier if I could get on a regular program of exercise. I, I just, I can't seem to will myself to do it. It's mm-hmm. a beautiful story. I love that story because... I would love to help you for all the reasons you mentioned, get on an exercise program. But 
you've told me something important. You've said, I've tried to do this once more than once more than three times. That means it's not just one time, here's the shot. That means something in you is not going along with the idea. So I start thinking, and that part's winning. Can I say one other thing about it too? I had a conversation with a girlfriend who was trying to help me. And I went through all the litany. I told her, well, you know, if I go swimming, which I love swimming, I said, now it it would take me, let's say it would take me 20 minutes to drive there. It would take me, then I have to get dressed, 15 minutes to get dressed, get my suit on, then I'm swimming for half an hour, then I come back, Mm -hmm. get undressed. and then So it's going to take me, I really figure, two and a half hours to go swimming and get back to my work. I went mm. through that whole litany with her mm. about how long it would take me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell me more about taking time away from things that are important to you. Yeah. That's tough, 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 David, because mm-hmm. my, my, I'm trying to do so much and I'm handling so much. Every moment, every moment is, is like counting, you know, the mm-hmm. seconds, the minutes. It's like mm-hmm. it, postmodern life is just filled with... Mm-hmm. So many details. Mm-hmm. If you were free and you didn't worry and you had infinite energy, would you get a lot more done or would you sit back and relax and let it go by? Because I don't know you. Both answers mm-hmm. are good for me. Mm-hmm. If you were free, if I were free, feel that inside. It's a feeling thing inside. If I were free, does your body kind of go, oh, I relax? Or is your body filled with energy to do something? I'll probably relax. Great. Yeah. Where's the relaxation inside of you? Is it in your gut? Is it in your hands? And the relaxation. I my first impulse was to say in my heart. Oh, that's gorgeous. Mm, that makes my eyes get watery. Feel that relaxation in your heart and then show me with your hand as you do it what a unrelaxed heart looks like and then let your hand and your heart relax. Cause, and the reason I'm doing this, I want to see it with you. Okay, a, so unrelaxed heart. Great. There's a fist with another hand around right. it, and it's tight, I think. Right. That's right. It's tight. It's squeezing. Okay. And then a relaxed heart. Mm, beautiful. Right. And both their one hand is on top of the other, right. and they're both open, and then you make a sweet breath. <sighs> right. Like that. Yeah. Do that breath one more time, and the hands move out. Yeah. Mm, that looks great. Mm-hmm. And um, uh-huh. what that takes me to, David, mm-hmm. um, it has to do with the breath, has to do with breathing. It has to do with deep breathing. And it reminds me of my childhood. Boy, isn't this good? It reminds me of my childhood. I've always been a shallow breather. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it was one of the many years ago when I was smoking, why I would smoke, to breathe deeply. And that was one of the ways that I stopped smoking was to train myself mm-hmm. to breathe deeply without the cigarette. Yes. And I think, yeah, I've been, I've been holding my breath. Mm-hmm. I've been, you know, mm-hmm. tense holding my breath. Can you see why, not that you shouldn't exercise, but can you see why adding another thing to your schedule even if it's exercise, would not work. It makes the scene tighter. Your heart says, more important than anything for me is to learn to relax and breathe deep. Adding two and a half hours of the day, yee, tighter. Right. The heart says, you don't understand. However this exercise thing is going to happen, it has to take into account a deeper impulse of your nature, 
which says relaxing is what I want to learn to do. Then I might find open up and open time. But first I have to appreciate that in you. Otherwise you should add one more thing to your schedule, <laughs> more tension, more tightness against the heart. The heart I say wins so far. Relaxing heart says me first. I say you're a relaxing heart first. That's the doorway. Right. Now if we were to go further, which we may not do right now, I would take this deep breathing, open-handed, open-hearted woman that you show me you are, and who goes, ah, and I'd say, how should I deal with the exercise problem? I'd ask her. Right. So there's a deep wisdom that we can access Mm -hmm. within ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's not so much the authority figure telling us, but going inside and asking the questions, will we get the answer? Yeah, you'll get an answer. It may be a direct answer. Do this kind of program, get an exercise thing at home because you don't have to take up time. All those would be good. But it may be a deeper answer like a Zen master would give. Don't worry about it for the next three weeks. Answer the relax, deep breathe, and in three weeks address the question again. So there could be different levels of the answer, but all those answers are going to have a certain kind of depth and a correctness for you, none of which I could have come up with out of my own head. I would have to have listened and followed your wisdom to find that out. Well, there it is again, that that diversity, that individual um, pathway mm-hmm. that you are encouraging rather than some sort of prescribed mm-hmm. way of being like uh, and I, I for myself, I just have not been able to will myself to do it. I have mm-hmm. not really exercised since I quit riding horses. Mm-hmm. I used to be able to get up mm-hmm. like at 6 o'clock in the morning to get mm-hmm. out to the stable. And then once I moved and, and that I, I no longer rode mm-hmm. horses, I just haven't been able to get with the program. That's exciting. If we, if we took time, I would now go into the horse story right. and find out what's there. But right now what I know is, because you use the word will a number of times, yes. will in your psyche is closer to a tight heart and deep breathing is closer to an open heart. So will is going to be counter to the heart's nature. I had a person ask me, I could tell this quick about exercise and she kept on making exercise plans and then not doing them, making plans, not doing them. And I said to her, tell me more about the plans you make. And she said, I do this. And then I, and then as she spoke, she said, I keep on blowing it off. Then I decide to go to the gym. I blow that off. And she kept on using that word, blow it off. And I said, do you have a lot of plans in your life that you have to do certain things and responsibilities? And she said, yeah. I said, would you like to blow those off? <laughs> she said, I wish I could. So she's practicing blowing something oh, yeah. off. She doesn't know how to blow off those other people yet. We have to teach her that. Other than Otherwise, she's going to blow herself off. Not ultimately good, but she does need to practice blowing things off. I need to help her with that. Beautiful. I'm here with David Bedrick. He's the author of Talking Back to Dr. Phil, Alternatives to mainstream psychology. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with David Bedrick, and he's the author of Talking Back to Dr. Phil, Alternatives to Mainstream Psychology. David, let's talk about shame, shame, which is uh, called the master emotion. So what can you tell us about shame and culture, families, and just our own internal voice? Let's mm-hmm. talk about shame. Mm-hmm. Shame is an experience of oneself that is as if you believe, and I guess people do, that something is wrong with them. Something is wrong with me. It's not because I have difficulties expressing myself or or that I'm a unique individual or that I need support to flower something. It's something is essentially wrong with me that needs to be fixed. One of the difficult things about shame is it makes people vulnerable to any kind of fix. So we have a diet industry. It's a $60 billion industry. I read lots of research. Five to 10% of the people sustainably helped by a $60 billion industry. <laughs> Whoa, that mm. is, they're not effective at all, yet all this money is spent. Yeah. Why? People feel so bad about themselves and think that the reason why they're eating the way they are or not exercising, et cetera, is because something is wrong with them. And that feeling, something is wrong with me, so dismantles my own empowerment, my own esteem, my own defense systems. It makes me open to anything, any little hope that you can get me to not have this experience of feeling bad about myself, I will try. So that's why I say the diet industry banks on our failure. It's not going to work, but they bank on that. Now, what is so interesting about the diet situation is this. Let's say I feel bad about myself. Something's wrong with me. Something's wrong with me. I need to lose weight. If I lost weight, I wouldn't feel this way. Right Now, that motivates me to go to a diet program. This is going to take away my shame. David, you're so screwed up. You'll be a decent person if you could eat less. That motivates me to go to the diet program. But something else in me that doesn't hate myself, that's not ashamed, that may love myself, says, I don't want to be told I'm no good, that something's wrong with me. I don't want to be told that I'm not beautiful by one more person. If I'm a woman, I don't want to be told I should look like a magazine by one more person. So you get two forces. See if you can follow. One force that says, I should lose weight. But that's sort of self-shaming, self-hating. Another force says, screw all these people who are telling me how to be. That's anti the diet program. It says, I'll dump the diet program. One part says diet, but that's not a very healthy impulse. Another part says, screw you. I'm not going to listen to you. I lose weight. I go back. I lose weight. I dump the diet. I lose weight. I dump the diet. That's yo-yoing because of a natural resistance to being shamed. It makes sense. So if we want to help people with a diet program, it cannot be motivated by I'm no good, I'm ugly, what's wrong with me, I'm not disciplined, even though that's what moves people to do it, yes. that very motivation, a person, once they feel better about themselves, is going to counter, and they won't continue the program. So we, we, we experience shame in our lives in so many ways. Uh, we're, we're, we grow up with it almost, and uh, it's insidious. I mean, it, it comes in under the radar, so to speak. How can we recognize that we're in that syndrome of, of feeling shamed? Mm, that's a great question. 
I love that question. I never thought about how do you recognize? I watch people and I can tell because they'll come to me and they'll say, I'm so sensitive. I'm too sensitive. Can you help me be less sensitive? And they're strongly wanting that change. And then my first question, you can tell from what I'm saying here, is I wonder what sensitive means and why it's so bad. Sensitivity itself doesn't sound bad. And as you can imagine, that person, if I say, tell me about being sensitive, well, tell me a story about being sensitive where you really would not have wanted to be. Well, I went out and I went to meet somebody and they said something to me and I got hurt. Aha, that person gets hurt and then they feel ashamed about having been hurt. I should have had better boundaries. I should have spoken up for myself. Maybe I shouldn't have gone to that meeting. This person was always a jerk. How come I always get hurt? They have a self-talk. A shame that wraps itself around a pretty simple event. I went somewhere and I got hurt. Now, if I undid that shaming notion and said, let's go back to that event. You went to that person. What's happening for you on the way there? Well, I'm getting tight in my stomach. Great. Can you show me that tightness? They sit up a little bit with a strong posture and they make some fists and they, their face looks more stern. That looks good. Can you be that tight, stern person? But tightness is not good. I know that, but let's stay with the tightness for a moment. And they sit up straight and they say, yes, I'm going to visit this person. And how would you go? Well, I would go prepared for this person always hurtful. Aha, very interesting. Or I know I shouldn't bring my sensitivity to this person. Or, I love my sensitivity. Certain people appreciate that about me and want to spend time with me. The sensitivity is no longer the problem. It's not a bad thing to be a sensitive human being. I think it's a beautiful thing. But because it's shamed, a person now is on a mission to get rid of the sensitivity. Never going to work. That person's going to over and over do something, get hurt. They won't know how to protect themselves because we've never taught them to protect themselves. They've only taught them to try not to be sensitive. If a person's sensitive, you're probably not going to get rid of that aspect of their nature. Well, you know, David, this reminds me of um, when we, you, you talk in your book about something about the observer effect. And when we go to a therapist or a counselor or something, they become the kind of authority. They are, they are the authority. And how does, how does the observer effect actually work in, its, in that sort of situation as a client-patient situation? Mm, that's really good. Yeah, it's very similar to what I'm, what, what I'm saying so far. If a counselor goes along with the person's self-diagnosis, oh, you're sensitive, I'm going to give you desensitivity training. <laughs> oh, you're depressed, that's bad. I'm going to anti-depress you. I'm going to lift you up, make you feel better, eat this, exercise this way, do these kinds of things, listen to this kind of music so that I'm anti-depressing you. In that way, the therapist as an observer of your depression is against what's happening for you. I'm anti you're going, let's just stay with the depression, is I'm anti you going downward, slouching, giving up, letting go, whatever's in your depression. So that observer is against what's happening. They will probably, a good chunk of the time, won't be successful because I haven't learned what that person's doing, what seed is growing in that person's depression. Mm-hmm. That reminds me, David, of an exercise that you gave in one of your classes that you mentioned in your book. And I, I just love it. It gave such a good visual of it. You you had someone who had some addictions, and you said, all right, over there in the corner is what you're going for. And, and so now go for it. And they walked over to the corner. And then you had them 
also walked to the corner, but you stood in their way. Can you describe that that scenario and what it's teaching? Yes. Let's say I'm a person who really needs social contact. I'm a person who thrives having friends and people to talk with and comrades. Not everyone's like that. And I need a lot of that in my life, but I'm a very shy person. So I wouldn't know how to come over to you and say, hi, my name is David. Can I meet you? Can I date you? Can I make your friends? Can I go out to a bookstore with you? I don't know how to make that company. So let's say that's true. So here is, I have an interest in meeting people. That would be going towards something. But my shyness, my nervousness, my awkwardness makes it hard for me to do. Now, that can be very, very potent for someone. That, I could die. I could be suicidal. I could get that down because I need people in my life and I can't do it. What might I do? I need a friend. Alcohol might do that. If I go to a bar and I have a few drinks, my shyness goes away. And all of a sudden I'm like, hey, how you doing over there? And I'm calling my friends on my cell phone. Hey, you want to come out? And that way the alcohol is helping me do something, getting past the block going in a direction I've always wanted to go. The alcohol and all addictions are like this, is an ally, it's a friend. It's not a good friend because there's a lot of negative consequences, but I better learn what that alcohol is doing. And if the alcohol is helping me make friends and I need friends, then I, as a therapist, need to be like alcohol. I need to help loosen that person up, make them feel less nervous, help them get over being embarrassed. I need to do the same things the alcohol is doing for them, help them make friends with people. I need to do that. If I inadvertently am against the alcohol, then I don't understand this person needs quote unquote alcohol. They need something to loosen them up to be less shy. Mm-hmm. So so in the in the the exercise, you're you're blocking them from going for what they want. And they, in the way you described it, they are getting around you. They're pushing you out of the way. They're, they're, they're being very strong about going for that. And yet that which they're going for is really invisible. It's invisible most of the time. The things people are really hungry for when they're eating a the food it gives them a taste of something. Somebody could eat a food, eat a, a potato chip and say, oh, it feels great. And I can say, go ahead, put the potato chip in your mouth, eat it and tell me what it's like. Mmm, I just feel settled inside. You would think, settled? That's interesting. Yeah, it's like when I do this bowing thing uh, in front of my altar and I make a deep ohm. Who would have known a potato chip gives them an mm-hmm. ohm, right? Mm-hmm. So they're going for that thing. They're going for an ohm. It's unknown. It looks like I'm just eating a potato chip. I'm making a mistake, but I'm looking for something. I need to find out what that thing is. And I like what you said. It's almost always invisible. The explanations that pop psychology has for people, you're self-medicating, you're looking for comfort, you're looking for ease, are almost never deeply true. It's almost always more nuanced and diverse and colorful as people really are. David, thank you so mm-hmm. much for enlightening us on, on all of these subjects. This is great. I've been speaking with David Bedrick, and he spells his name B-E-D-R-I-C-K, David Bedrick. He is the author of Talking Back to Dr. Phil, Alternatives to Mainstream Psychology. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, talkingbacktodrphil.com. And that's spelled Dr. D-R. Phil, P-H-I-L, talkingbacktodrphil.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org.
I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3482. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Please visit us at newdimensions.org, where you can subscribe to our weekly podcasts, find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive, and access many other resources for conscious living. That's newdimensions.org. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. Since 1973, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge of culture, the arts, science, health, psychology, spirituality, and a host of other fields. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support.